Hey, it's uh, good to be with you guys this morning. My name is Caleb. If we have not met before, I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, thanks for being here. We are in a series in our fourth week. We are going through the book in the Bible. Really, it's a letter in the Bible that Paul wrote to another pastor named Timothy. And we're exploring what does it look like to have a stronger life. There's areas in all of our lives that we want to see grow, improve, be different than they are now, be better than they are now. And so we are looking at this letter together. Uh, before we jump into our time today, I'm going to pray for us and ask God to move in our hearts and our minds. And our lives. Father, I thank you that you speak to us, that we can gather together and we can hear your voice through your word. And I pray that you would shape us today, that you would help us to let your voice lead every part of our heart, in our minds, in our lives. We need you, Jesus. And so I pray, speak today in your name. Pray this. Amen. So there's all sorts of different areas in our life that we want to be stronger. And you might have an idea of that. Maybe if, uh, if you've been coming the last couple of weeks, there's some different things that you've been thinking about of, man, if my life could change in this way, if this, my relationships could be stronger, if my faith could be stronger, if my emotional life could be stronger, if whatever it might be for you, there's, there's all sorts of different areas that we desire to be stronger, that we desire to improve. But it can be really hard to do that. It can be really hard to see all sorts of different areas in our lives change if we don't focus in some ways on our identity. Because there's a lot of different things that you might want to get better. There's a lot of different things that you might want to improve. But if you don't focus in some ways, if you don't focus on strengthening your identity, it can be hard to see any area in your life get stronger. Your identity, your identity is, is I'm not talking about driver's license or, or that kind of thing, but your identity is, it's how you define yourself. It's who you view yourself to be. And it affects so much of our lives. It guides so much of our lives. So many of our choices and our decisions and, and our emotions are guided and led by who we view ourselves to be and how it is that we see ourselves. I was watching a, a movie recently called Molly's Game. I don't know if any of you have uh, seen it. It's a, it's a great great movie. It's based on a true story from a gal that is actually from Loveland, Colorado. And she was a skier. She was on the Olympic ski team. And she ended up, as a young, breaking her back in a, just a freak ski accident. Uh, but basically, all through her life, her dad had kind of formed her identity, and she had taken on an identity of wanting to win, no matter what the cost. And the ski thing kind of set her on a different trajectory, where, and again, this is a true story, she, she ended up being the host and starting the, the most exclusive high-stakes poker games uh, in, in the country, in the world, really. And so she would host these games for billionaires and for actors and celebrities in different places. And eventually the FBI uh, indicts her and she talks about, there, there's kind of like this plea deal where they're going to try to get her off, her lawyer's working, and, and her lawyer says, hey, here's one of the ways I'll be able to get you off. It's if we just say, hey, you, were, you weren't really the, the hostess, you weren't really the person that started this, you were kind of just a, a cocktail waitress basically at these poker games. And she says, no, I'm not going to do that because that's not true. I'm not going to do that because she felt that would affect in some way her identity. No, I'm the one that started these things. I'm the one that started the most exclusive high-stakes poker games in the country. I don't want to give up that aspect of my identity, even if it would allow me to get off the hook, even if it would allow me less jail time. I don't want to say I was a cocktail waitress. That's not who I am. I'm a winner. 
I'm the person that started these things. Now, that's just an example, and, I, and part of why I love uh, kind of true story movies like this is because it allows us to see, it allows us to see um, what, what an identity over time can do and what it can lead to. And our identity issues are the core of many of the issues in our lives. Maybe for you, you find yourself often comparing yourself to other people. You find yourself comparing yourself to other people, and, and maybe it's in a, in a negative way of, man, I'm not as good as anybody, or maybe it's in a positive way. You kind of assess the room and go, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm better than these people at this. I'm better at these people than this, and kind of are able to see where you are in the, in the pecking order. Identity issues can lead to that. It can lead to maybe you just don't even know who you are or don't like yourself or unsure of yourself. Identity issues can lead to you really want to be seen in a certain way. If you believe or value yourself as, as wise, you really want people to see your wisdom. It's not enough that you are wise. You want people to know that you are wise. Or maybe it's beauty. You want, people to, you want to be seen as beautiful. You want to be seen as a good mom, as a good dad, as a good husband, as a good wife, or a good friend. You want to be seen as a good person. Identity issues can lead to all sorts of things in our life. And, and here's the thing with identity also. Many things go into forming that. In, in Molly's game, her dad and coaching her and skiing formed kind of this identity as a, as, as a winner. But many different things go into forming our identities. It's part of why I love biographies or true story movies because you're able to see what went into forming someone. What went, if, if you today are here, what went into making you that person that you are? I was reading a biography a couple years ago on C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, and the biography's name is The Narnian, and it just talks about the life and imagination of C.S. Lewis. What is it that made this person? And I love it, it's just him in his bathrobe with a lion behind him, which is, what went into making this person? And it talks about World War I and his experience as a soldier in World War I. And it talks about as a little kid reading different poetry and fantasy things that shaped him. What is it that went into making him the person that did these things and lived this way? And all sorts of things form your identity. Good things that have happened in your life. Good experiences and good influences in your life have formed you to become the person that you are. And bad things have happened in your life. Maybe sin that was done to you has shaped your identity in different ways. And maybe things that you have done have shaped your identity, how you view yourself, how you define yourself. Things that you want to happen form your identity. All sorts of things, the voice of your parents and the voice of different teachers and, and people that you have had in your life, all sorts of things go into forming our identity. But it's not just stuff that happens in the past. It's, it's continually happening. Your identity isn't done forming. Your identity, even though you know who you are in some way, right? You, you, you might even have a really strong sense of here's who I am. Your identity is never done forming. It's continually forming. I'm, I'm reading right now the memoir that Michelle Obama just put out, and I'm not going to go into detail about it, but I just I love the title and how she prefaces the, the memoir because it's all about identity. And she's talking about, you might kind of view me as Michelle Obama, you know, first lady, but she talks about, no, my identity is actually still forming. At one point, I was, my identity was this little girl in South Side of Chicago. Then my identity is this. But she's talking about throughout the memoir how she is still 
becoming, even someone as accomplished and, and who is someone that you might look at and say that, man, there's clearly that person is who she is. She's the first lady or was the first lady, but she's talking about how she's still becoming somebody along the way. And this is what is true of our identities. Many, many things go into forming our identities, but your identity is never done forming. It's continually happening. You're continually becoming somebody. So all of that is to preface this. Your identity is really important. And what goes into forming your identity is really important. Who you are becoming is a product of the different things that are influencing you to become something. And all of that identity formation is really important because it sets the trajectory for your life. It sets the trajectory for the choices that you make, the decisions that you make, the relationships that you have. Your identity, the formation of it, is crucial if you want to experience life in the way that God wants you to experience it. And so we must pay attention. We've got to pay attention to what is forming our identity and what should be at the core of our identity. And here's the question for us today is, what is the identity What's the identity that that God wants for you to have? What is the identity that leads to a stronger life? What identity do you need to be operating? Identity, who you are and how you view yourself and how you define yourself. What identity do you need at the core of your life to experience life in a stronger way, in the way that God would want for you to experience? So what's the identity that we need and how do we get that and what would that actually change? And what we're going to look at is Paul, the author of this letter that we've been looking at, one of the early leaders of the church, one of the apostles of Jesus, he, he writes and shares his story of how his identity was formed. He shares a little bit about himself. He kind of gives us this snapshot biography of here's who I am and here's how that's changed me. And he uses it as an example for us to be able to look at what could form our identities. So let's read this and then we will talk about what identity we need. Here's what he says. He says, I give thanks to Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, appointing me to the ministry. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man, but I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I'm the worst of them, but I received mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this instruction and keeping with the prophecies previously made about you, so that by recalling them, you may fight the good fight, having faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered to Satan, so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. Now there's a lot in here, and we'll start with this. What can form a stronger identity in us? Paul gives us a snapshot of his life to help our identities be formed in a way that will lead us to experiencing life in the way that God intends for us to experience. And here's what Paul starts with. Here's what he brings us in on and tells us. Like Paul, we have an identity apart from Jesus. 
All sorts of various things. Paul, Paul says that before I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man. A blasphemer, someone that lives their life uh, saying, saying false things about God. Not because they're necessarily believing that they're a blasphemer, but because by their life they're not speaking to the truth of who God is. He was a persecutor. Now, Paul's job at one point was to hunt down the church that was forming. He was against them. He wanted the church to stop. He did not want Christianity to get started. He wanted it to be done. He was a part of murdering people and taking them into court and jailing them and seeing them die. He was a persecutor and an arrogant man. He believed in doing all this. He was right. He believed in everything he was doing. He was on the right side. And Paul gives us a little window. He says, Here, here's who I was. I was a sinner. I was a sinner. I did all sorts of things. I mean, that, that's not, you know, those, those three things, a blasphemer, a persecutor, an arrogant man, you know, you can kind of brush by those. But Paul is giving us a window into his soul and saying, I was a part of killing people. I was a part of making people. It actually says elsewhere in the Bible that he was not only a blasphemer, he was trying to force other people to blasphemy. He's saying, look, I, I was a bad person. And maybe when you view your identity, it's the things that are the worst about you that stand out to you. Maybe when you look at your past and you say, I was formerly this, or maybe you would even say, I was, I'm presently this. It's, it's the things that are the worst about you. The things that are the worst about you that you say, man, in some way that defines me. And you might not like that, that might not be what you want, but that's the stuff that kind of comes up in you, that you believe this is who I am. Maybe that's what you see. Or maybe it's the stuff that's the best about you that you define yourself by. You see, Paul says he was a blasphemer, and he says he was a persecutor, but the arrogant man peace. This is all in hindsight. When Paul was doing all this, Paul believed he was a very good person. Paul was a devout Jewish rabbi. He was a leader. He was elsewhere. Paul talks about, I was a, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Kind of, that's like saying, man, I was a pastor of pastors. I was the best. Like I, whatever, whatever ranking you want to put me on, I was the best there. I was from the right people group. I had the right education. I was as smart as it gets, as good as it gets. He says, I obeyed God's law perfectly. See, Paul was a very religious person. And part of his identity is he says, I was an arrogant man. See, I was living a good life and doing my best to do everything that God said I should do. He says he was ignorant. I was, I was doing everything that I thought was right. Maybe for you, it's not the worst things about you, but it's the best things about you that you find identity in. It's the things that you look at and say, I am good at this. I, maybe it is, it's directly spiritual related that you say, Here, here's my identity. I'm a, I'm a good person. I'm a person that follows Jesus. I'm a moral person. I believe the right things. I live in the right way. I do the right things. Before, Paul says, this was my identity. I, there's the things that are the best about me that in some way were my identity, the things that were the worst about me. Now in hindsight, he says, could be his identity. But here's what changed. Paul says he was given a new identity. Look what he says, he, just to take this kind of formula. I was this, all the things we looked at. I was, but I received mercy. See, Paul says, here's what changed. There's ways that I defined myself. There's things that were true about me. I was this, but I received 
mercy. See, this is what Christianity actually is. I don't know what you think Christianity is. Many people might think that Christianity is trying to follow Jesus. It's not. And many people think that what Christianity is, is it's trying to be like Jesus. It's not. You might view kind of Christianity, and, and maybe for you, if you think about what does it mean for you to be a Christian, it's I'm really trying to love Jesus. I'm trying to learn about Jesus. None of that is what it means to be a Christian. See, to be a Christian is exactly what Paul just said. It's to be given a new identity. It's to be given a new identity to say, I was, but I received. That's what Christianity is. That's what Christianity claims to do. That is what gives you a stronger identity, is there's something that is done for you a status change that actually takes place. It is not, I was, but I'm trying. It's not, I was, but I'm learning. It's not, I was, but I'm following. I was, but I'm trying. I'm, I'm, I'm doing my best. It's, I was, but something happened to me. I was, but God gave me something and changed me. I was, but I received. That's very different. This is what Christianity is. It's a new identity that is offered. It's the only thing that actually even purports to do this, to say that it's not about what you do that gives you God's favor. It's about what he's done and we receive, which then leads to a changed life. Paul says, I was, but he did something for me. See, Christianity is about, the gospel, the good news is about what God has done to make us right with him, what Jesus has done to make us right with God again. No matter how you have defined yourself, maybe you've defined yourself as, man, I'm, I'm the worst that there is. I'm a blasphemer, persecutor. Maybe your identity is seen in the worst things you've done. And Paul says, I was, but now I've received. And that can be true for you. Or maybe it's the best things, though, that you define yourself by. Maybe like Paul, you look at yourself and actually feel pretty good. You look at yourself and see the religious components of your life, the good person, the morality in your life. And morality in many ways is the greatest heresy. Because morality says if you are good, if you are good, if you believe in God, then you're fine. Paul says that was actually one of the worst parts about me, that God needed to change. See, now I have a new identity that's not about what I'm doing. It's not about my actions, about what's been done, what I've received. Now, you might think of God's grace. You might think of God's grace in different ways. Many people talk about God's grace. And, and if you're not a Christian here, you might think of God's grace in different ways. Or even for Christians, I, I know we, we think of God's Grace, and I don't know exactly how you think about that, but there's, there's a lot of common ways that we think about that. One of them is we kind of think of God's grace as a boost. So maybe, you know, I've got some things in my life that I know need to change. I've got some things in my life that I want to work on, and God gives me his grace, and that sort of helps me kind of get to the next step. Yeah, I've kind of, I've got some things, and hey, Jesus is my Savior. Jesus forgives me. Okay, great. I, I kind of get a little boost, a little extra to help me, and now I really need to do my part in this. But I love what Paul says here, because look what he says about God's grace. He says, the grace of our Lord 
overflowed. You see, he says, look, there's something that formed my identity. It's not what I do anymore. I received something. And the way in which I received that wasn't a little bit. It's kind of a boost to help me. He says, it overflowed. See, when you think about the image of something overflowing, I mean, I I think about floods because dams break and they overflow or rivers, uh, rainwaters come. And so things overflow, right? And what happens when something overflows? What happens when a dam overflows or a river overflows? This is from Colorado. It's, It's destructive, right? It gets rid of everything in its path. It's, it's powerful when something overflows. Maybe you just think about your basement and it overflowed or something. Maybe your toilet overflowed. Maybe it's not as dramatic as this, but still destructive, right? It still brings pain and agony if, if things overflow. When something overflows, it destroys whatever is around it. And Paul is saying this about grace. He says, God, look, I I viewed myself in a certain way. And whatever your identity is, however you view yourself, Paul is wanting us to see, here's what the identity given to us can do. Here's what's inherent in it. It overflows. There's more than enough. It's not just that God gives us some grace. It's enough to sort of get you to the next spot. It's not just that God gives you a little bit of grace that maybe you say, okay, yeah, Jesus, Jesus forgave me. When I was a little kid, I prayed some prayer. and Okay, Jesus forgave me, and now I'm kind of living my life. I'm trying to follow him. I'm trying to do a good job. I'm trying to learn. But no, Paul says, look, grace overflowed. There's more than enough to destroy everything in your life that you would base an identity in apart from him. There's more than enough grace to deal with every sin that you've had. There's more than enough grace to destroy every part that you might say, yeah, but my identity, man, I I still know I really need to, to be good at this and then I'll know I'm okay. He says grace overflowed. There's more than enough. And he uses another image that I I find helpful that he wants us to think about. See, maybe for you, you think about grace this way. It's kind of a, and people say this a lot, that it's, God's given me a second chance. Maybe think about grace like that. Maybe think about God's forgiveness like that. Maybe you think about being a Christian like that in some way. I've been given a second chance. Uh, You know, I, I, I did this, I became a Christian, now I've got a second chance. I did this and now it's on me to, kind of show God that I, that I deserve kind of what he gave to me. Look what Paul says. He says, he's the worst that, Paul says, he's the worst that there was. And Jesus demonstrated his extraordinary patience. His extraordinary patience. Or this word, actually, if you, if you were to look at it in the Greek, it would say it's super patience. And Paul is saying that God not just had grace for him, But the fact that Jesus gave Paul grace shows his super, his extraordinary patience. That God had extraordinary patience on Paul. He looked at Paul's life. He looked at Paul's life and he sees someone that maybe in some way should have known better. Who had read the Bible, who was a a religious leader and yet denied Jesus. Who was given opportunities and yet denied Jesus. Who had heard sermons and yet denied Jesus. And he says, you know what? One of the reasons that he did this for me was is he wanted everybody to see his extraordinary, his super patience. He wanted people to see how patient 
God is. And here's what this means for us. Here's what this means as you think about your identity. Christianity is not a second chance. God's grace in your life isn't a second chance. It's something that is always there and still there. And when God looks at your life, he's not getting tired of you. Some of you need to hear that. That God's not getting tired of you. That when you continually go back and you say, God, I'm trying, but I still am harsh with my kids. God, I'm trying, but I'm still selfish with my spouse. God, I'm trying, but I, I keep going back to the sin that I'm trying to change. God, I'm trying. God is super patient. He says, Jesus is super patient. He's extraordinarily patient, which means God is so unlike us. I don't know what you get impatient about. I mean, I, I think I'm fairly patient, but if I'm hungry, oh man, kiss it goodbye. I just, I mean, if I'm hungry, I like sometimes we'll be at a restaurant and I need to eat usually before I go to a restaurant because otherwise when I'm waiting, my wife will have to be like, hey, Caleb, I know you're hungry right now. You know, she usually carries snacks in her purse for me like, a, like a, I'm a preschooler. You know, here's some goldfish, calm down. Because if I'm, if I'm a gluten-free goldfish, because if I'm hungry, man, I'm, I'm, my patience is gone. And I don't know what you get impatient about, but you can see every, all of us have kind of this limit, right? These things that you might be, I'm really patient with this, but uh, man, put me in a long line, put me in traffic, it's over. Or whatever it might be for you. And you can kind of see the limits of your patience. And most of the time we view God in the same way as us. We kind of say, hey, you know, I might struggle with patience, so God's probably, it's probably tired of me by now. But what Paul says is, look, I am the worst that there was, and part of why God even saved me is because he wanted people to say, wow, God must be really patient if he could save that person. Now, God must be really patient if he would give grace to that person. This person that didn't get it over and over and over again. God must be really patient. So here's what Paul is saying. You, you need this to go into your identity. It's not about what we do, but what we have received. It's not about what we do, but what's been done for us in an overflowing way. In a way where God says, I'm not tired. I'm not tired. Even though you, you here's, here's the thing. We can say, look, and I know so many of us can say this. Yes, 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 I know. It's not, about what I, it's not about what I do. It's about Jesus, blah, 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 blah. But when we actually live our life, when we actually go about our life, we revert to, it is about me and my identity. It is about how I view myself and what I can accomplish or if I am good at this or if I'm not good at this. And, and God wants us to say, look, my grace is enough and my patience is extraordinary. And I love this part because Paul even, he even takes it further. He doesn't just say God's patient. He says that God wanted to demonstrate his patience. He says God actually grabbed Paul. It's kind of like God is saying, Paul is saying this. God looked out and said, who's the worst that there is? And said, I'm going to pick that person and I'm going to save them and bring them into the, the ministry to pastor other people, to help other people. I'm going to pick the worst I can find. Why would you do that, God? Paul says the reason he did that is to demonstrate his patience as an example. I mean, we don't really have someone like Paul that I can think of that's kind of this horrible example. But if, if you think of someone that maybe is a terror, I mean, think of a murderer. 
A black, I mean, think about in our day, someone that you might say, this is the worst opponent of Christianity that there is. And God says, yeah, that's going to be actually one of the most important leaders of the church. And God says, I, I'm picking that person, not just because I'm gracious to him, not just because I'm patient to him, but I want it to be on display. I want it to be an example, or as he says, a demonstration. Look, look what he says. Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example. You see, what's a demonstration? A demonstration is more than just the thing. It's intended to create a visceral response. When, when we think about demonstrations today, you might think about protesters or people that do often some sort of creative display to say, this is wrong and we want to protest it. We want to we show you how bad this is. We want to demonstrate so you don't, we, we're, we're not just arguing on the street about facts. We want you to viscerally feel as an example the thing that we're standing for. So here's some examples. This is kind of a silly one, but these people were, were protesting. It says, give three-piece a chance, talking about three-piece suits, because there was an Abercrombie and Fitch opening on, uh, this is a place in London that was like kind of classic for their suits, and there was like, you know, chain store going right there. And like, that's not okay. You know, we want to show you and demonstrate by this. Okay, that's a silly example, but here's factory workers. They were protesting the conditions, the wages, and they laid it down, all their hats. You see, that's different from just saying, hey, we want better wages. You need to pay us fair. You need to, they're trying to do something to demonstrate, to get a visceral response, an emotional, guttural response that you say, oh, that is wrong. Or PETA is great at doing all sorts of things. They had people kind of drinking from the udders of a fake cow to say, not your mom, not your milk, okay? And if you were to walk by on a street and see people, you know, sucking from the udders of a cow, you're probably going to go, that's gross, and they're trying to make this point, you know, don't drink cow's milk. I'm not trying to endorse, by the way, any of these things. Uh, I had a bowl of cereal yesterday uh, from cow's milk. Uh, or this one, by the way, is going to gross you out, but, and, and it's fake, but this is, this is a, a dog. This is another PETA one that they have on a barbecue. It's a fake dog, but, but they're trying to show, hey, look, you wouldn't grill a dog. You wouldn't put a dog on a barbecue. So, and maybe I just convinced somebody to be vegetarians, right? Or some of you are vegetarians. You're like, yes, this is the best sermon I've ever heard, right? Uh, but but they're, they're trying to get a visceral response, right? To show, look at, don't, don't, just give, let, don't just let me give you my argument. Let me give you a demonstration so you feel it at a different level. Or maybe one of the most classic examples we have. Martin Luther King Jr., of course. And what's the, what's the reason to go to Washington, D.C.? What's the reason to gather a million people in one place? They weren't all just arguing about something. There's something about the quantity of people and the place in which it takes place in that just the sheer impact of the, the, the view shows something of, wow, maybe we should take this seriously. There's a demonstration that's done so that it creates in us a visceral response, an emotional response. And here's why I love this. This is what Paul says. Paul says, God doesn't just want to argue with you logically. He doesn't want just to tell you, I'm gracious, I'm patient. He grabbed someone as a living example to demonstrate 
Paul says. He used me as an example to demonstrate his patience for everybody. So that when Paul walked into a room, people would say, that's the person that killed my uncle. That's the person that shut down the church where my sister met. That, and look, now he's here. And he's different. And he's worshiping Jesus. And there's a guttural response, Paul says. God wanted everyone to see how patient he was. God wanted everyone to see how gracious. He didn't just want them to know it. He didn't just want to put facts on a page. He wanted to demonstrate it. Here's why. Because God wants you to feel it. That's how much God cares about you. That's how much God loves you. Is He doesn't just want to argue with you. He wants you to feel how good he is. He wants it to hit inside of your guts so that you are kind of you know, sucker punched and just go, whoa, that's how good he is. Knowledge isn't enough for God. He wants you to actually experience at a deeper level his grace because that's what can give you a stronger identity an identity that is not based in any way on what you have done, but rather what you have received. This is an identity that's not innate in you. So you, it's not, this is not what Christianity is. Christianity is not, hey, you are awesome. You're just great. It's not innate in you. And it's also not earned by you. It's something given to you Freely, graciously, overflowing, super patiently, demonstrably. So that you can say, wow, something for me. I was, but I am. I was, but I received. Paul says that's what gives you a stronger identity. That's what forms it. And, and if you have that, what begins to happen? If your identity is formed in this way, what happens? What does it actually change? What actually takes place? If your identity, who you are, how you view yourself, how you see yourself, how you want to be seen is formed like this, what happens? Here's kind of the core statement that Paul gives to us, his identity now. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the worst of them. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the worst of them. Paul is saying, this is now what is my identity. This is what has shaped me. This is the trustworthy saying that has shaped everything in my life. What does it do? It does a lot of stuff. I mean, think about right now when you're criticized. When you're criticized, when people say something about you, whether it's very direct or kind of passive, it's really easy to be defensive. To say, no, I'm not like that. Because it's not just an insult. It's not just a criticism. It's an attack on our identity. Maybe you view yourself as a, as a great mom. So if someone makes any commenting on your parenting at all, it's very easy to be very defensive. This is part of why we're so kind of up in arms all the time about texts and emails and things that we read into stuff that's not even there. Because we're so hyper about our identities not being touched. Don't tell me anything different about how I am than how I view myself. So sometimes it leads to us when we're criticized being very defensive or sometimes it's not, it's not in response to the negative. It's, it's what we want to portray. We really have to be seen. We really have to be respected for whatever it is that our identity is found in. 
See, if your identity is about what you've done, then you're going to be defensive if anyone touches it. And you also have to let other people see it. People have to see you the way that you see you. If you view yourself as wise, you've got to make sure that people know you're wise, that they've got to see the name dropping, you know, that you know, or the places that you've been, or the experiences that you've had. But with this, if you say with Paul, if you say with Paul, hey, here's what happened. Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners, and I'm the worst of them. That means that the worst about you doesn't define you, and it means the best about you doesn't define you. If you say with Paul, I'm the worst that there is, and yet Jesus is my Savior, then you know what that means. It's okay to be sinful. And I don't mean it's okay as in you should do it. I mean it's okay in the sense that we can own it. We can say, yeah, I've done things. Paul's not afraid. No one could criticize Paul. Think about how bulletproof that makes you. Someone says, you're a jerk. Paul says, yeah, I know I'm the worst. Well, you're arrogant. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm so arrogant. I've killed people. I'm the worst. Well, you're a blasphemer. Yeah, you don't. Man, I, let me show you my sermons on blasphemy of what I've done. I'm the worst. You're able to actually be criticized because you can say, man, I'm worse than you even think I am. I'm so bad that Jesus had to die for me is how bad I am. See, it changes our posture towards defensiveness. It changes our posture towards uh, braggadociousness or needing people to see us because there's a humility that says, I actually know myself. I know that Jesus is a great savior and I'm the worst sinner. This is what it did for Paul because the core of who he was was not what he did, but what Jesus did for him. It frees you from criticism. Second thing that can happen is it changes your self-image. Because if you don't even think about criticism, how do you do it your own standards? Your own standards, your own kind of gauge of this is the person I'm supposed to be. How do you do it those? If, if you say, you know who I am, I'm, I'm an honest person, really? Man, I'm someone that always sticks to my word, really? Man, I'm someone that seeks out wisdom and input from others, always, really? I'm a hard worker. Like, your own self-image and how you view yourself, if it's based on what you do, sometimes, sometimes you might be killing it, which usually leads to then self-righteousness. If you view in your identity that who you are is somebody that is a loving friend, then you are going to really easily be self-righteous to those, to those that are not loving friends. And if you view your identity as a loving friend and then you get accused of not being a loving friend, that's going to crush you. You see, when we base our identities in what we do, it either leads to a self-righteousness or often a self-pity and a despair. But Paul, Paul is able to say, again, freely, Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the worst of them. His identity is not based on what he's done, good or bad. It's based on what Jesus did, which allows him to start his whole thing with this. I thank Jesus who strengthens me. I thank him. See, it leads to a posture of thankfulness instead of a posture of defensiveness or posturing 
And the last thing that it can change in us, I mean, it can change many, many things in us, but the last thing that we can see here is it leads to, just as Paul is doing, an ability to be vulnerable, an ability to actually share. Like, would you want to write Paul's letter and say, here's my past? Would you want to remind, maybe even people already know, but would you want to remind people? Hey, remember when I killed people? Hey, remember when I blasphemed? Hey, remember, like Paul has no shame in being able to say, that's who I was. He's got no qualms about saying, I'm the worst of sinners. There's nothing in him that goes, you know, there's parts of my life I can't share with people because they might see it and say, wow, you're that bad? There's nothing Paul feels the need to hold back on. You see, it leads to a vulnerability where we don't have to pretend that we're better than we are. Sometimes we pretend that we're better than we are by hiding stuff that's there, the sins that we have. You know, right? There's things in your life, there's thoughts that you have, there's things that you've done that you keep. You don't want your spouse to know. I'm not saying like there's bodies buried in your backyard, maybe. I'm just saying there's things that you're like, I I really don't want to be quite honest about that. Because you feel if that defined me, if they knew that, they would view me differently. Paul is able to be totally vulnerable. He doesn't have to pretend who he is. And he doesn't have to pretend who he is hiding his sin. He doesn't have to pretend who he is with achievement, which is the flip side. Sometimes we pretend not by hiding sin, but we pretend by kind of exaggerating our achievement. We talk about ourselves in better ways. We, we kind of use the resume version of ourselves, which, you know, Most people aren't 100% honest on their resume, or at least they're making themselves the most polished version of themselves that there is. What are your greatest weaknesses? Man, I really work too hard. Sometimes I'm too on time. You know, I'm so on time. It's like on the dot, you know. I can support my boss too much sometimes. And we polish ourselves. And Paul, Paul is freed from that. When you read what he writes here, he says, I'm the worst. There's an ability to be vulnerable and not pretend in any way. There's an ability to give thanks to Jesus instead of giving thanks to himself. So he doesn't write and say, hey, I'm not bad at all. But he also doesn't write and say, look, I'm really good in all the things that I'm, he's saying, I give thanks to Jesus. The best about me is from him. And the worst about me has been taken care of by him. So my identity is fully in him, which allows me to be vulnerable. Let you really see me for who I am. See, what happens when our identity is formed by what's been done for us instead of what we do? It makes us much more resilient. It makes us much more honest. It makes us, in a word, much more humble. It just creates a deep humility when our identity isn't about what we've done because we can take no credit for it. Last thing is this. How can our identity continue to be formed in this way? How can our identity continue to be shaped like this? Because your identity, who you are, who you view yourself to be, will lead to so many of the choices that you make, so many of the decisions that you make, so much of the trajectory of your life is set by your identity. And it's not stopped forming. You are continually becoming somebody. So what can shape our identities to keep being formed by what's been done for us versus what we do? Here's what what Paul says. He gives us 
a couple things. The first is this. This saying is trustworthy. The saying about Jesus saving sinners and being able to view ourselves even as the worst of them like Paul does. He says this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Now listen, he's writing this to Timothy who's a pastor at a church. He's writing this to Timothy and yet he feels the need to remind him of this. He says, there's a saying, there's a truth that you already know, Timothy. Listen, if you're a Christian and you've been a Christian for a long time, there's a a saying that you already know. Jesus died for my sins. Jesus forgives me. There's a saying that you already know. But, Paul says, look, I'm writing to you, Pastor Timothy. There's a saying that you know, but that I want you to once again fully accept, Paul says. See, there's a difference. There's a difference between knowing something and fully accepting something. There's a difference between learning something, knowing something, and in the moment of need that you need it. See, Paul sees that Timothy needs to hear this again. There's a difference between I knew that, I know that, I can give the right answer to it, and I have fully accepted this. I've gotten it inside of me. I've gotten it down deep to the point that it's fully accepted. This is what Paul says will continue to shape our identities. It's not just being able to write the right answer or articulate it, but to have it fully accepted inside of us. This is what we need. What allows your identity to continually be shaped and formed by what's been done for you versus what we do is not a one-time knowledge, but a continual full acceptance. So let me ask you this. Is this something that today, don't look back in the past. Is this something, don't look back and, you know, when I was at camp or when I was, yeah, I asked Jesus to forgive me. I said I was a sinner. Or when I was, you know, at the kitchen counter with my mom and she prayed for me. And today, in the moment of need in your life, in the areas where God is calling you to himself in the areas. See, Timothy had certain things that he was challenged with, that he was wrestling with. And Paul is writing to say, today, you need to fully accept this. Don't look back in the past. Have you full, is your heart fully accepting, fully open to the fact that I'm a sinner and I need a savior? I'm a sinner, and yet Jesus saved me. He did something for me that I cannot do by myself. That's what Paul says we need to fully accept. So here's what I ask you is the same what Paul is doing with Timothy is the places in your life where that's not true. It's to confess that to God, to say, God, I don't fully accept. I maybe did at this point, but I'm kind of holding back right here. And the second thing that Paul gives to us is to fight the good fight. This is the last closing section. And he he tells Timothy, fight the good fight. Fight the good fight. Now, he's not telling Timothy to put on boxing gloves and to, to fight somebody. But what Paul is talking about is there's some people, some teachers, and, and we, we looked at this a, a couple weeks ago. There's some people, Hymenaeus and Alexander, that Paul has removed from the church. There's some people that Paul has removed from the church because they were teaching things different from what is true. 
We looked at a couple weeks, all the different things that Paul says, look, this is what a life conformed to the gospel is. And Paul says, there's actually people whom I have delivered to Satan, which was a a way of saying, I have removed these people from the church. They have said, we want to disobey God. And Paul has said, I don't want that for you, but if that's what you want, okay. In hopes that they would be taught not to blaspheme, in hopes that they would change, in hopes that their life course would be set in a different way. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander. Paul says this, look, there's, there's always going to be There's always going to be in your life different teaching. There's always going to be things in your life that can get you off course from what God has for you. And what he tells Timothy is this, I want you to fight the good fight, which is to say fight for truth, fight for what is real. He gives an example of these teachers that he's removed, but he's telling Timothy the gospel, what Jesus has done for you is so beautiful and so important informs your identity so much that I don't want you to allow anything that's not true to affect that. I don't want you to allow anything that's not true, so you have to fight. And see, Paul is telling Timothy that. For us, we can take that instruction and say that the way that our identities are formed is a community thing. It isn't just something that we do by ourselves because Paul is saying, look, there's teaching happening in the church, Timothy that can get people away from this beautiful gospel. I want you to fight like I have fought, Paul says. And that's the calling that we have as a church. The same calling that, Timothy, that Paul gives to Timothy, which is to fight in the lives of each other. To say that the gospel matters so much that Jesus doesn't want us to wander away from it. He doesn't want it to just be a, a thing that we were on the right course, but now is shipwrecked. He wants us to experience the goodness, the life, the joy, the identity that he wants for us. And part of how we do that is fighting for each other. Just like Paul is doing here. Part of how we do that is speaking into each other's lives and saying, don't you want what Jesus wants for you? Don't you want to see who Jesus is? Don't you want a life, like Paul said last week, don't you want a life that conforms to the gospel? A life that is lived out of a different identity. An identity that says the most important part of who I am is Jesus and what he's done for me. Paul says fight the good fight for others, Timothy. That is our charge as well. So in in closing, your identity will shape much of your life. Much of what happens in your life is going to flow out of who you view yourself to be, how you define yourself. What would happen if in the core it was something done for you by Jesus, not something that you are doing for yourself, not something that happened, not the worst of you, not the best of you, but what he has done for you. Paul says this is what strengthens him. He says this is what he wants to strengthen Timothy. When we come and take communion, we remember the very thing that forms our identity, which is why we do it every week. Because we want to say our identity keeps needing to be formed by this. Our identity needs to continually be formed by the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus' body was broken. His blood was shed. And we do it every week to get this fully accepted, ingested inside of us. To say we need that forming us every week. To say I'm a sinner 
not to deny that. I, I'm so bad that I am saying Jesus' body was broken for me and his blood was shed for me. And yet, man, my identity, I am so loved that Jesus offers himself to me freely. He says, I want you to have this. I want it to overflow. I want you to see. I want to demonstrate. I want you to remember that this is what should form you over and over again. So pray with me, and we will respond in communion and singing. Father, I thank you that you gave Jesus to us to save us from our sin, to give us not just forgiveness, but a completely new identity. God, I thank you that your patience is extraordinary and your grace is overflowing. That for every sin that we have, you meet it with grace. Both the grace to pardon and the grace to change us. I thank you for that. I thank you that you gave us the example of Paul, which shows us that you can take the worst of sinners and forgive them. And it shows us that you can take the worst of sinners and change them to an obedient life, conforming to your gospel. And so I pray for us today that as we take communion, we would come honestly to you, asking you to continually renew our identity, to fully accept what you've done. 